Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. Hello to all our listeners on Wall Street and on Main Street. We have a great show coming up. We'll be looking at China and its massive economy and where it is headed on the global stage. Is China a rising power, a rising superpower? And will its currency become a dominant currency, even a reserve currency one day? We will take a deep dive on China. Why does it matter here to us in America? Who are the winners and who are the losers in all of this? As China proudly seeks the spotlight on the global stage. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Co-Founder and Managing Partner at Odeon. And we'll be right back after this. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, we have a great show lined up. We'll be talking about China. Is it rising and what we should be looking at here? I'm going to say China fascinates us all in the West. You just never know how it might surprise us, frighten us, and even change the course of history. We'll talk about that in a moment, uh, but let's just briefly talk about the markets and what's going on out there. And Dick, I got to sort of pat you on the back a little bit here. You saw this surge in inflation coming back last March. You talked of 1970s style inflation when I interviewed you uh, last year, and you seem to be right so far. We have consumer prices rising 7.5% since uh, last year, the fastest pace in 40 years. It's quite astonishing. Where is this going to end? Well, I think that the the critical variable here is uh, whether you're willing to accept a monetarist view of as, as to why this inflation is there, or whether you believe that the current thinking, which is built around uh, supply chain disruptions, is the critical variable. In other words, um, if, if you accept what has been, I'm going to say, hundreds of years of theory and practice uh, from the monetarist side, which is if you debase the currency and if you use the central bank to basically pay for the debts of the nation, uh, that you will create a high level of inflation. Uh, We put out a piece which showed that that's what happened in Rome, that's what happened in Weimar, Germany, that's what happened in Zimbabwe, that is what is happening in Venezuela. So, you know, I'm, I'm basically following the tack that if you go out and produce $6 trillion in a two year period, 
and drive the stock market prices, you know, to levels which we've never seen before. Monetarism is good, it's working, inflation is in place, and it's not going away. If, however, you believe that this is a supply chain disruption, which is the view presumably of the Federal Reserve and of most of the pundits who look at the situation, uh, they're saying this time is different. And because it's different, this inflation will be gone by the end of the year. And therefore, interest rates will come back down. And it'll simply be a momentary blip, which we don't have to worry about. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting uh, because from a theoretical standpoint, you wind up at two totally different places. I'm on the negative side, and I, and I think you guys might be on the positive side. Well, I'm not so sure, but like 7.5% since last January, fastest pace in 40 years. So you're holding to this double-digit inflation later in the year still, Dick? Well, you know, the PPI was out today, and it was 9.1% year over year. So we're getting pretty close to that yep. double-digit number. Uh, and the PPI supposedly is a precursor of where the uh, CPI will go because the PPI is unfinished goods, commodities, uh, whereas the CPI is finished goods. So if the PPI carries through to the CPI, they use all those uh, jargons, uh, then basically, yeah, I, I believe it. I believe we'll get to double oh. digits. Well, it's wreaking havoc on the market, Matt, right? I mean, it's got to be playing into what we're seeing in the market and the volatility and the talk of interest rate hikes to sort of tame that inflation monster. Yeah, I mean, the Fed has multiple tools in its toolkit, and one of them that it's really good at using is leading the market as to where it wants to go by saying things like, we're going to be raising interest rates. And um, uh, voting member Bullard is out there saying, I think I heard him right when he said he wants to do a shock interest rate of 1% the first time, um, you know, definitely 50 basis points when it seems like everyone else is thinking 25 basis points. So, you know, a lot of it is just talk to try to get the market to go where they want it to go rather than yeah. actually have to make the decisions and, and actually implement the policy because they can kind of goad the market into into it without having to take drastic action. Could you see a scenario where they raise it 1% or just even more shock and awe and the market reacts violently and there's a kind of almost a crisis in the marketplace that they would pull back then later on and scale back those interest rate rises? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's been the, that's been the modus operandi of the Fed, at least since the GFC. Um, you know, since 2008 is they, they talk a big game and you look at these uh, bubble charts that they put out, the, the dot plots that say where they think interest rates will be, you know, and I think it goes out um, 24, 30 months and it's never once been accurate. Um, it's never even been close to accurate because the, the dot plot is always, you know, angled up, up and to the right. And reality has always been they get one or two of those dots and then they have to hold or come back. But if, you know, look, the the inflation problem, I, I know Dick and I are of different opinions on it, but the reality is I think we're of the same opinion that the Fed has never cured inflation without causing a recession. And they're trying really hard to make this be the, the exception to that rule. And maybe I'm hopeful, maybe I'm optimistic, or we're looking at the, different, at the same data and seeing different things. But to me, I think once the supply chain imbalance is restored and, and once people stop building up inventories because of the supply chain issues... I think you'll see a natural reduction of or of inflation as time goes by. Well, we just have to wait and see, but there seems to be a consensus on that. If you once you start rising interest rates, it, it is the precursor to a recession. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're trying to kill inflation, 
it's almost historically impossible to kill inflation without causing a recession. Yeah, we're going to see a lot of havoc among consumers. Well, we'll be right back in a moment. Dick, you have studied the Chinese economy in depth. You've looked at a lot of the numbers out there and you've come up with some fascinating uh, thoughts. And where do you see China headed and in particular its currency? Well, I think that uh, a decision was made by China and Russia uh, two decades ago, uh, and, and they can think in terms of decades, whereas we only think in terms of what's going to happen over the next three months. But, you know, their decision was that they could no longer live with uh, a dollar as the, uh, if you will, reserve currency of the world, because the United States was using the dollar for more than simply a reserve currency. They were using it as a political tool. In other words, uh, a few months ago, if you uh, looked up uh, the, the data from the Treasury Department, there were 29 countries that were being sanctioned by the United States in one form of, or another, everything from Cuba and Iran, which everybody knows about, to uh, countries like, uh, you know, the Sudan and Zimbabwe uh, that nobody, you know, really cares about, <laughs> not to say that they're not important. But the point is that um, uh, if, if you believe that this dollar power that the government has is being used to force other nations to change their mode of operation. Because by the way, both Russia and China have been sanctioned by the United States. Then the only way you can get away from these uh, political pressures is to force the dollar into a subordinate position to the one and to give the one the ability to use political power, uh, the, the, the base currency rate as political power. So I think that uh, over a period of many, many years, starting with joining the World Trade Organization uh, at the beginning of this century, uh, they've been taking a series of steps which would move the yuan into position and move the dollar out of position. Uh, whether it succeeds or not, you know, we'll see. But there's no question about the fact that uh, they've done enormous things to, to improve, improve the position of the yuan. So you saying China and Russia are in cahoots here. They seem very strange bedfellows. Well, they're, they're definitely in cahoots here. Uh, basically, Russia, a few months ago, uh, made the decision that uh, it would no longer buy dollar-based investments in the pension funds of the of the Russian, you know, economy. Now, I don't know what pension funds they're talking about, or whether it's just verbiage, but they made a commitment that they would only use the yuan. Uh, they've also signed deals with China based upon the yuan. Uh, they have uh, essentially made public statements similar to the Chinese that they want the yuan to become uh, a stronger reserve currency. Because by the way, the yuan is one of the top five reserve currencies in the world today. Reserve currency designation is given to you by the International Monetary Fund. And about two years ago, I think in October of 2020, I don't remember exactly, uh, the one was it was given the, st- the status of being a world reserve currency. Uh, so, so in other words, 
you, you, the steps that, that have been taken, and we can go back over every one of them if you wish, are, are being uh, are very effective. And Russia is very, very much in support of these steps. And Russia is using its power, as we understand it, to convince the Union of South Africa, Iran, North Korea, you know, and other countries, uh, even you know, Ecuador, uh, Kenya, to to fall in line with uh, you know what the Chinese want in in this regard. Is it officially recognized as a reserve currency? Is one thing. Calling yourself a reserve currency, but is it recognized and treated as a reserve? There are two distinct things here. It, it's it is officially recognized as a reserve currency, but it is not treated as such mm. in the in the transactions that occur in the world market. Yeah, you know, nobody words, says, "Oh, it's a reserve currency." I mean, sort of that idea would be dismissed by a lot of people. Yeah, but it is. I mean, you know, there are there are eight reserve currencies. There's the dollar, the euro, the yen. There's uh, to, 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 there's a Swiss franc. There's uh, you know the renminbi. There is uh, the Canadian dollar. There's the Australian dollar. Each one of them are officially designated by the International Monetary Fund as being a reserve currency. Now, what does that mean? It means that those currencies can be used for transactions. They can be used in payments of debt. They can be used in foreign exchange uh, valuations. Uh, it, the, this, is, this is already in place. The question is who's using them? You know, how many people are using the Australian dollar as a reserve currency? I would assume nobody. But, but the fact of the matter is the Chinese have gone well, well beyond this. The Chinese have loaned money to over 150 countries around the world, supposedly, according to the Kiel Institute. The Kiel Institute is a respectable research organization. Carmen Reinhart is, is part of it, and she was the lady who successfully wrote this book about this time is different, you know, in the last financial crisis. But anyway, the Kiel Institute says a trillion dollars, 6% of the world GDP is now owed to China. The United States owes $1.1 trillion to China. So, so the net effect is when you've got that many countries dependent upon the loans you make to them that you know you're never going to be able to pay back, right? That that country can now make demands on you. And it is. It can say, we want to trade with you and we want to do it in the one, not the dollar. You can't say no. That country can do, I want to give you two simple examples. It can go to Ecuador and say, Ecuador, 90% of the output of your country is got to be paid to us to pay back your debt. And if you don't do it, if you don't pay us 90%, we have the right to take any natural resource we want in your country to, to take care of that debt. It goes on the other side to Djibouti, which is not even half a city, but it's sitting right on the tip of the Persian Gulf. Uh, and it says, Djibouti, you can't pay us back. We're going to put the first Chinese military base outside of China on your port. And you can't stop us. And they so it can get very nasty. It, well, it's very nasty because in order for goods to get from the Gulf to the American base in Djibouti, which is behind the port, it has to go through the Chinese base and if the Chinese say, no, you can't get that, those goods delivered in this fashion, they will not be delivered. So China has developed this power. It is using this power, and it's using it politically the way the United States is using the dollar politically.
You make some good points about the way it's investing and lending out its capital around the world throughout Africa. You know, they've put money into big road building and train projects, and there are willing borrowers. But I'm not sure if they know exactly what they're getting into here. Well, I mean, that's the point, you know. The point is Kenya, for example. All of the, most of the major road building programs in Kenya are being done by China, and they're going to factories which China has built, and the people working in those factories are expatriate Chinese, all right? So, you know, basically, if, if you read Machiavelli's Prince back in the day when you were in college, that's exactly what he said to do. He said, if you want to take over a country, get your residents to live in that country and and you will be effective why did russia take you know the crimea they said there are russian people there why did you know they they take uh, the northern part of the country of georgia why did they take you know a chunk of armenia uh, back for azerbaijan why do they have troops in kazakhstan it's the machiavellian theory put my residents there my residents want to live in my country these people are treating my residents badly. We're going to go in and take it. Is the point here, Dick, that China's currency is a rising reserve currency? It could one day displace the U.S. dollar? Well, you know, uh, the, the International Monetary Fund has uh, put out a study in 2020 done by mathematicians and economists and, and all these guys who run these formulas as to what, what you have to have in place to be a reserve currency. And, you know, the first, first example is they took a look at Great Britain and they said that it doesn't fit after 1885. It doesn't, it shouldn't be a reserve currency. But for the next 40 years, it was a reserve currency because of inertia, because we had all these systems set up, all of these networks in place, which lived on the pound. So they now take a look at the United States and they say, hey, this thing doesn't deserve to be a reserve currency based upon its huge amount of debt, based upon its trade deficit. But because of inertia, it could be the reserve currency for another 40 years. They figured out that the average life of a reserve currency, you know, going back to 1450 in Portugal, is about 110 years. The United States has been the world reserve currency for 100 years. So, I don't know, I just throw these ideas out because they frighten the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah, they certainly frighten me too. Matt, what says you? There's a lot I, I want to respond to. Um, first, I agree with Dick that China is trying to prepare their currency to become the, the global leader in their reserve currencies. Um, but it, it still is, I mean, I just looked this up on the IMF website, um, it's only 2.5% of the global reserve currencies in any country that carries another country's currency as part of its basket of currencies. Um, part of the SDRs, the, the currencies that the IMF uses, the Chinese currency is only 11%. You know, so it's, it's setting itself up, or they're trying to set themselves up to be the emerging global reserve currency. I agree with that. Um, but I, I take issue with the idea that it's destiny. I take issue with the idea that um, they can impose it on everyone. I take issue with the idea that a currency that basically pegs itself to the dollar is going to be the currency that replaces the dollar. You know, you mentioned a lot of things like uh, Crimea, you, you know, being the example of, of Djibouti. And by the way, Djibouti is not on the Persian Gulf. It's over by the Red Sea. It's across from Yemen. And I don't want to dis discount its strategic importance. It's a very strategic, important place. But when you compare it to Crimea, when Russia came into Crimea, 
um, they were taking, I don't want to rationalize it, but they were taking back what used to be part of Russia and a Russian speaking population that existed there thousands of years before um, Russia came and took it back last decade. The idea that Djibouti is going to become Chinese by having some Chinese workers build a port there just seems a little bit non-paralleled with the Crimea example. Same with Georgia, same with Azerbaijan. These were populations that were basically ethnically or culturally um, Russian for a long time. Not, you know, and the people in Djibouti are probably not ethnically Chinese or have a historical connection to China. <laughs> um, and, and, and finally, I would, I would just say that the, the reason the U S dollar is the dominant currency is, you know, it, it's, it's historical artifact coming out of world war one when we kind of displaced, um, the pound, which was the prior global reserve currency, which was, you know, at that time backed by gold. And it has a lot to do with our historic, our unique place in the world. We're the only dominant superpower that is surrounded by oceans and, and friendly nations um, with a strong military. We have uh, the ability to engage in any country in the world militarily with naval and air capacity. China is a long way from that. And the other thing I would say on China is, you know, there's this old phrase, demography is destiny. And they are a peaking, they've peaked on, on population. Not only have they peaked, but they're super imbalanced on, on, a, on a gender ratio in a way that even if they started today, and, and they're far from starting today, um, they're not going to be able to have population replacement. And I said this to a friend uh, over the weekend. And his response was, look up artificial wombs, and, and then, then you'll get scared. And I looked up artificial wombs, and I got scared. So if they're going to start growing babies in a, in, a, in a non-traditional way, then maybe my demography is destiny theory is gone. But it, it, it's a country that's going to have a massive problem in a couple of decades, replace, one, maintaining its elderly population, maintaining its um, economic growth, and maintaining its place in the world. The, the, the final point is countries and everyone gets to choose what they use as their currency. And, you know, you can make an argument that the reason the U S dollar doesn't need to be backed by anything is because of our military, but you can also make an argument that it's basically the petrodollar and it's backed by oil, but people choose. And you don't see a lot of clamoring of people choosing China. They're forced into it or they're, or they're connived into it or, you know, they're, they're offered a, a major port or a major road or a major whatever. And, you know, those countries are going to have to deal with it, but they can deal with it by converting whatever currency they want to pay it back in, in the, in the yuan. So I, I don't know that it, it's, it's fait accompli that China is going to be successful. I think what they're doing with Russia and China is more strategic with regards to Ukraine, Taiwan, and just trying to break up NATO and kind of break up the traditional balance in the global marketplace and not necessarily currency based. I think the China-Russian alliance, if you will, is is short term play. But I was uh, back to what you were saying there, uh, Matt, about um, some kind of baby factories, uh, that kind of dystopian future. Let's not dismiss these crazy scary and frightening scenarios. You just never know. 1984 and, and Future Shock and all of those things rolled into one. But yeah, I mean, China's population growth has fallen to a 61-year low. We had Beijing recently announced major reforms to address decline, including three-child policy 
and raise retirement age. I mean, I don't think I can recover from this. You know, its fertility rate is declining. What are they below? You need, what, 2.1 to children. It's, it's a weird when they, when they dissect it like that, but you need 2.1. That's the statistic to replace a generation. And China is below that, as is the US. We've also fallen below that. But I don't think in the case of the US, uh, demography is destiny or because we, we also have a very open borders. So I don't mean in terms of Mexican borders and so on and what we see going down, down the south, but we allow in immigrants and, and uh, this uh, recent drop in our fertility rate, I, I, I happen to think, I would hope, is short term and we'll recover, we'll come out of COVID and we'll have you know more larger families to encourage and uh, nurture and propel our future and um, so that we have a you know prosperous future for other generations. So I, I think China and the US are two separate cases. And we also have our constitutional protections in America with the Bill of Rights, fundamental freedoms. We're the hub of innovation. We're not a totalitarian state like the Chinese. I mean, yeah, yeah, the average Chinese loves taking home a paycheck, I guess, and goes to his new apartment in Beijing and everything, but he won't speak out. You can speak out in America. And by and large, you know, we may have had protests on the streets, but I think we're a pretty happy lot here compared to the Chinese. So I think we're, we have a stronger economy. And that, again, is going to feed into uh, the strength of our currency. I don't think that's going to happen in China, Dick. Okay, well, let, let me first agree with uh, 99% of what both of you have said, all right? You know, this they were ethnic Russian, uh, you know, if you will, people in the countries that we described. There are no ethnic Chinese in Djibouti, okay? Uh, there, there were, um, you know, there are large amounts of inertia in the current system because we've moved from military dominance in terms of establishing currencies to trade dominance in establishing currencies to now it's, uh, you know, if you will, finance dominance. In other words, the financial system that is set up, which determines the, 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 the base currency. But, but the fact of the matter is that with all of those facts being correct, and by the way, I love the United States more than I love China. And I think that, uh, you know, China <laughs> is very much like Japan. All right. So I'm not like that. Uh, You're holding on to your U.S. citizenship, Dick. Yeah, yeah, I'm not like that Olympian from San Francisco that uh, won the silver medal in, in yeah, that was bizarre, wasn't it? With the Chinese flag, you know. Yeah. But the point, the point is, um, I do see the following steps. Number one, that in 2001, uh, there were less than 100 banks in the world, and this has been written up by others, not myself. Uh, there were less than 100 banks in the world that would deal with China. Uh, now, virtually every bank in the world will deal with China. Uh, you know, prior to, you know, the uh, movement of uh, the major American companies like, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, etc., moving into China and teaching China how the investment banking system works, you know, China could not issue uh, debt or, or equity in any of its countries, companies. Uh, but now, not only can it do so, it is doing so, and it's doing the largest offerings in the world. And some of these offerings are, do, are being done without the United States 
helping in any way. In other words, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs may not be the lead in the deal, may not even be in a deal as part of the syndicate. So, you know, we, we've taken something, a country, if you were sitting here, you know, in 2000, thinking about, you know, Cho and Lai, et cetera, Mao Zedong, thinking this is a, a wacky country, to the country that exists today in which it does have this massive financial presence in the world. I mean, why is everybody worried so much about, I think it's Evergrande or Ever, Evergrande, uh, because all of these Western, if you will, lenders own bonds in, in these Chinese countries, companies. And the other thing is that um, in China, you don't change governments very often. In Russia, you don't change governments very often. You got a czar and you got a, you know, emperor uh, in, in those two countries. I mean, so, so the net effect is they have time. They can withstand setbacks. And I believe that, you know, their, their goal is clear. Uh, Russia is one of the most prosperous nations on earth because of its oil surplus. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is they, they have goals, they have time, they have mechanisms. And, you know, everything that you look at, if you compare where China was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago to where they are today in the financial markets would suggest that give it 10 more years and they're going to be stronger still. So I do think they're a threat, uh, even though I agree with all of the issues that both you gentlemen have uh, have raised. Well, I agree, one, that I don't think I would accuse you of loving China more than America. Um, I also agree that it's a global threat. I think, I think the distinction is that I don't think that it's destiny that they're going to become the, the, the global reserve currency. And I also don't think it's destiny that any country that they've invested in will cave and become, um, you know, many Chinas or more loyal to China by choice. You know, you, you walk, you watch what they're doing with, you know, the Taiwan issue. And, you know, right now they're kind of attacking Lithuania who opened up a, a Taiwan tourism office in their downtown. And the EU is taking note and saying, look, you can't punish Lithuania for having, you know, cordial relationships with, with, with Taiwan and, you know, stuff like that, that they go around and kind of bully different countries you know, at, at right now, they're the world's manufacturer, and you can't really have an economy without sourcing most of not all of a lot of certain products from China. But that doesn't mean that it's going to stay that way forever. You know, the, the, the way that um, Xi has become basically president for life, it kind of indicates to me that he thinks that it's destiny. And I just don't think that it's necessarily true. I mean, China has been on and off a sovereign nation, or at least, you know, com combined, it's had at least a core of a sovereign nation for 5,000 years. And they've never really been a global leader in any, in any sense of the word. Um, maybe this time is different, but right now we're, we're and predicting the future and predicting how America's decline will be met with ri a rising China. You know, I kind of just think that something else, it's too soon to say that that's definitely what's going to happen. Joining the SDR and joining the IMF as a reserve currency just merely reflects that they're the second largest economy on earth. And some, by some measurements, they're the first largest economy, but it's divided among 1.6 billion people. So you still have, on average, a much poorer population and a lot of room to grow. And one of the reasons our global dominance, ours being the US, global dominance militarily 
is because countries, many countries ask for it. They want that protection. They want America to be the world police. Um, as much as they might not like it, it's yeah. better than the alternative. And if the alternative is that China is the world police, I think that would scare a lot of people and natural forces would stop it from ever happening. The whole world's really in cahoots, if you will, with China because we buy all their goods. They, everything on this, a lot of the stores in, in, in America are made in China. And that's just simple and stark reality uh, for better or for worse. I think including, some of it is for worse. Including Make America Great Again hats are made in China. Right. Let me I forgot about that one. But we could have a whole separate show on the world trade, how we got into the World Trade Organization. I'm baffled. But here's an interesting stat. I mean, China has a lot of systemic problems. And even though it may, as you say, Dick, could have a rising currency. Maybe it will have a short-term play as a, a super reserve currency. I, 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 I'm skeptical. Uh, here's a stat. The Institute of International Finance estimates that China's total domestic debt rose to 335% of gross domestic product in 2020. It's got a huge debt problem. It is a huge housing problem. It is overbuilt in China. So the, the leadership there is not telling you everything you want to know. Um, the one way I, I could see it getting some type of short-term gain is, yeah, strategically uh, work in alliance with some of these despotic countries like Venezuela, some dictatorships in Africa, maybe. These aren't legitimate players, China, in terms of currency. And I don't think... It has a lot of popular support. And I think you need popular support to uh, have a strong currency. I don't believe, I mean, Portugal, Spain uh, did never have popular support for, for, for a strong currency. They had gold and silver uh, and they had trade support. And, you know, I, I want to make a couple of other points, but just China was the dominant nation in the world for a long period because the world was not just Western Europe. It was, you know, the Far East and every country had to pay tribute to the Chinese emperor, otherwise he was going to come there. And when the Mongols, when the Mongols took over China, then you know they controlled everything right into uh, Europe. Uh, they owned Russia, among other things. So, so they were a dominant factor, and they want to get back to that. But you know, wh why is the reserve currency so important? Why would they fight so hard to get it? And, and the answer there is is very very important because. The country that has the reserve currency has massive advantages economically over every other country in the world. Number one, all of the products, commodities in the world are designated in your currency. Oil, for example, is designated in dollars. If, uh, if the yuan was the reserve currency, we would have to buy yuan to buy oil because it would be designated in, in the yuan. Number two, uh, because all of these other nations are using your currency as their reserves in their central banks, you have to keep expanding your debt to give them more currency so that they can basically 
you know, increase the size of their currency and stimulate growth in their nations. Therefore, you've got an open line to increasing debt as much as you want until about two years ago when that line seemed to have been cut off somewhat. But, you know, you have the ability to grow debt. You don't have to increase your taxes. You don't have to pay back your debt. You know, if you lose the reserve currency, you got to increase your taxes. You got to pay back your debt. You got to run 10 to 15 year uh, recession, depression in order to get yourself out of the problem that was created because you had all these benefits when you had the reserve debt. That is why China and Russia and North Korea and Iran and Union South Africa and all of their, you know, client states, you know, want the United States knocked off the mountain. And that's why, even though you're exactly correct, it's not a free country, uh, and, and probably most countries in the world are afraid to death of China. Uh, in fact, there's an article in Far Foreign Affairs magazine uh, this month uh, or this quarter in which they're saying that China has so frightened the rest of the world that they're forcing the creation of alliances to be China. All right. So China may may not succeed, you know, in its military or its, you know, political goals. But that doesn't mean to say they're not going to succeed in their financial goals if everybody is going to buy products made in China. And if the Chinese are going to be able to float their debt and, 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 and force other people to pay them back in their currency, which is happening and never happened before. That was a good explainer, and it's important to emphasize it, why it's important to have a reserve currency. You can literally go out and buy your goods and services around the world and keep printing money to do that, which the US can do right now. So if we lose that ability, the cost of goods and services and everything in our stores is going to go right through the roof. And take a look at who's supporting the dollar, but it's the Federal Reserve. And as we discussed in prior meetings, you know, the Federal Reserve is not on Mount Olympus. Zeus is dead. And the fact is that the Federal Reserve, if it was a private bank, would be would be declared insolvent because it's funding 30-year debt, 30-year assets with, you know, five-day paper. Uh, and, and, you know, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has effectively no equity uh, unless you consider the fact that the currency, which is considered to be debt, is is really not debt, it's equity, because no one's ever going to get, you want to take your money back to the Federal Reserve and ask for it to be redeemed, uh, they're going to smile at you and close the, close the window. So, so the net effect is, you know, we don't have a strong, sound, stable system that is, is backing the dollar at the present time. And that dollar is being backed by a nation that has $30 trillion in debt, that has a, a, a trade deficit, which is with virtually every country in the world. Uh, and that's not the basis of keeping the world's reserve currency. And, and China and Russia know it, and they're coming after us. Does China and Russia want us to be able to stock up on their currencies, or at least in the, the one, so that that gives them more leverage financially and politically and economically? Well, obviously, that would have to happen. It, it, they're not going to become the reserve currency of the world if we don't hmm. have the Federal Reserve. Well, so we have to cooperate. Currency. We have to cooperate with them, though, right? Absolutely. Will they get it? Well, you know, when you go back over time and you say, why did, uh, why did uh, Portugal lose it? Why did Spain lose it? Why did France lose it? Why didn't the Netherlands lose it? Why didn't, you know, Great Britain lose it? None of them cooperated. 
None of them mm. said, hey, hey, I think you are better guys than we are. Therefore, you, you, you take over and you have the reserve currency and we'll sit back and we'll increase our taxes and we'll run our recessions just so that you can be at the top of the hill. No, nobody ever said that. And nobody's ever going to say that, you know, in the China situation. Uh, it happens because of raw power, financial power, you know, trade power, you know, uh, you know, military power. Those are the things you need. And, and that's what China is building. The case of Britain, it, it had went had two world wars, right? It lost its empire and it, its checker was almost bankrupt or was bankrupt in the aftermath of the Second World War, perhaps after the First World War. It just it squandered a huge amount of its treasury. The lost same its, thing. its reserve currency as well. That followed suit. Yeah, Spain did the same thing. Yeah. And what is the United States doing? Does the United States have a, a budget surplus somewhere that uh, I'm not aware of? Does, is the $30 trillion budget debt in the United States a massive understatement of what the United States actually owes? Is the United States, you know, manufacturing goods, which are now being bought all over the world, which was the case at the end of the uh, 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century? Is the United States doing anything to suggest to you that it is different than what happened with Great Britain or it's different than what happened with Spain? I don't, if it is, I don't, I don't see it. I don't know what it is. It's inertia. It's military power. It's the need, uh, you know, for a financial system around the world, which is stable. All of those things are in place. All of those things keep the dollar where it is. It's probably going to keep the dollar where it is for another 10 to 15, maybe 20 years. But don't give me the argument that the United States is so much different than the countries that lost the reserve country currency that now, you know, the United States will never have it happen to, to, to the United States. Maybe that's explains some of the ideology and the rallying cry behind the Trump campaign, make America great again. <laughs> we better. <laughs> whether we do it from the standpoint of America or whether we do it from other standpoints, we've got to make, we've got to get, we've got to get this economy under control. We've got to get this financial system under control and we're not doing it. All we're doing is fighting with each other and, you know, you, you, in, last, in the last week, you have two Federal Reserve presidents now questioning the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. You have Senator Man, uh, Manchin, Manchin, you know, questioning it. Uh, so, you know, I apologize. I can't get the thing to stop ringing. That's okay. Well, we're in financial offices and newsrooms and everything. So listeners will get that uh, sometimes phones interrupt in the middle of some brilliant discourse. And that's okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I feel like we're you're conflating two different things, Dick. Um, on the one hand, you're expressing the view that the dollar is not going to be the global reserve currency for too much longer, which I don't think is too far out of line with the consensus. The, the, the balance is, is why is it the yuan is the inevitable replacement? Historically, you know, you can go back to various points in time when the reserve currency is in flux and changing, like Breton, the Bretton Woods Agreement, where basically the, the countries, you know, I, I'd call them the G7 countries maybe, or maybe the G20 countries get together and kind of come up with a, a formulation. And this is kind of how the U.S. dollar became the reserve currency. It was, it was, it was through negotiation and agreement. And, and then maybe it was matching destiny at that point, but, it, you know, it was kind of decided. 
And the idea that naturally the yuan, I don't think anyone would choose for the yuan to become the reserve currency. Maybe I'm wrong, but it just doesn't seem like something that the Western countries would, would volunteer for. And so part of it requires that the Western countries basically put their heads in the sand when the U.S. dollar eventually does lose its reserve currency status and just accept that, that the new world order is happening and you know get on board. Um, but alternatively, they could, and we could, as as a part of the the system that that you know works or has worked for the last um, seventy or eighty years, choose a different reserve currency or come up with an alternative. You know, people, you know, you, you, you've typed this into DuckDuckGo, you'll find that you know the 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 most common proposal is using the IMF's SDRs as as the reserve currency. The second most common proposal is gold. Third most common is um, Bitcoin, <laughs> and you know something, some some sort of something that doesn't have that has a finite issuance, so that you can't get stuck in this loop of um, infinite money printing. But I, you know, I can I think I agree with you. Everything you say about the thirty trillion dollars of debt, which is really hiding the sixty trillion dollars of debt that is the Social Security Reserve Fund, um, which is also hiding the you know the obligate the other obligations of the United States that are off balance sheet, which at some estimate are around a hundred trillion dollars. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that you can look into the future and say, okay, the U.S. dollar is on the decline as the strategic reserve currency, but that doesn't, you know, equal the way you're making it seem like that the the one is inevitable. There's lots of different options out there besides letting China just take over. Well, two, two thoughts about that. The first one is that you're right. Uh, you know, that there is no inevitability saying that the yuan is going to take over. And, and certainly the rest of the world is, is not going to uh, raise their hands and say, hey, we really want the yuan here because, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the best one available. Uh, but, you know, basically it comes down to military prowess, trade prowess, you know, budgetary uh, strengths, uh, and, you know, whoever is going to step up and, and, and take the reserve currency has got to have those things. At, at the moment, my best bet would be the one. But, but I agree with you, Matt, a thousand percent. It, there's no inevitability which says it's going to be the one. The second thing that is important is I don't care who gets it. If we lose it, we got a big problem, right? In other words, you know, we're getting so many advantages as a result of having it that we don't even understand or realize because we can't ferret out all of the many benefits that come from having the world's reserve currency, that if someone else, if, if the, the euro becomes the currency or if a, uh, a group of nations form together and, and, and put their, you know, uh, their, their, uh, de their, their debt and their earnings together and they take the reserve currency, you know, we lose it. And if we lose it, we lose a lot. And it's going to hurt us a lot. And that's why there has to be some emphasis placed upon what it is, what it means. There has to be some emphasis placed upon the fact we cannot be this profligate, you know, any longer. We've got to do something about it. At least that's, that's, that's my feeling or my thought. I think we're in trouble if we lose our reserve um, currency status, that would be a dreadful catastrophe for America. And we're headed in that direction. I really feel that just based on even this 30 trillion and all these unfunded liabilities and, and other 
and even political instability that we have in America. But I, I, again, I don't know if anything is inevitable in terms of the next reserve currency, because you have right now central banks around the world, as you alluded to, experimenting and investigating digital currencies. And that's at a fairly advanced stage. So maybe something else will replace it. I don't think we can just say we'll have a traditional form of reserve currency. We may have a a digital form of reserve currency going forward. And that could be driven by geopolitical events. And we'll see how that plays out. No, I think you're exactly right. What's the only country in the world, by the way, that has a a digital currency? Is it China? Yeah, it's China. <laughs> right, but the point is, the point is, I, I think you're correct. Well, you remember the old saying "made in China" was almost a term of it wasn't a term of endearment in the old days. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. But anyway, uh, but anyway, I think that you're right. I think the technological advances have reached the point where it, it is highly probable that there will be a reserve currency 20 years from now, 25 years from now, which will be digitally di- driven, which will be not under the control of any nation, uh, which will not you know, lend itself to, you know, expansion, uh, you know, the, the way you can a fiat currency today, you know, simply by saying, hey, we need more money to take care of this. So let's print some. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, as, 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 you know, I've been asked many times, do you believe in the, the, the cryptocurrency movement? And the answer I have is absolutely, definitely, without a question, yes. Because basically, you know, we're dealing with, you know, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, all the speculation and all of these crazies coming in with all of these different, you know, reasons for buying or selling or what have you. But at the core, there is a reason why this currency, you know, it, why these currencies exist. It, there is a reason why they're being accepted and held and why people are working so hard to try and figure out how to make them transaction based. And the reason is because we can't trust fiat currencies. And I think that uh, I think you're, you're, you're on the right track. I think you're exactly on the right track. Could I ask both of you, is there a takeaway here for investors and big business? What they what trends should they look for? Should they hedge their bets or is there anything that you see there? Yeah, yeah, my message is very clear. My message is buy land, buy gold, buy silver, buy cryptocurrencies, but have, you know, 85% of your money in the dollar, right? So in other words, hedge yeah. hedge your position, right? Don't don't make the assumption that because some guy says that uh, China is going to be the world's reserve currency 30 years from now that I should do you should do anything dramatic or erratic at the present time. I think at the present time, what is facing you, what is staring you in the face very clearly is this inflation. And if you want to protect yourself from this inflation, you better buy hard assets. You better write calls. You better buy puts. You there, there's a whole series of things that you can do to protect yourself and benefit from you know inflation. And I think that's what I'm more interested in today. While I worry about and fear what could happen tomorrow. Yeah. So don't 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 around. give up on the dollar. No, no, don't do that uh, because inertia is in place and inertia is going to carry it for at least the next twenty years. Matt. 
I agree with everything he said. <laughs> you want to look, whether it's an inflationary environment or the lack of the losing of your reserve currency, you don't want to have your net worth or any significant portion of your net worth resting in a fiat currency or resting in a bank somewhere. You want to own assets. Um, you know, the, the broad term cryptocurrency gets me a little bit nervous because there are some that are dog currencies and there are some that are joke currencies and they call them shit coins. And, you know, you got to be careful which one you, which one you go into. I don't, you know, like looking over the crypto space, I don't know that it's destiny that Bitcoin is going to win, but it sure seems like it's the strongest cryptocurrency right now in terms of China having a cryptocurrency. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to watch because, you know, you, 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 you look across the world and if you say the wrong thing on the on the wrong platform, you get canceled. And right now it only includes your ability to communicate and, and speak. But if we were on a digital currency, you you could find yourself losing your currency. Um, and it would really change the the whole banking system and the way you know um, consumers operate because arguably if you could put your money at the Federal Reserve in their digital currency, that's better than putting in a bank in terms of security and safety. And so it might destroy the banking system. So I, I agree with everything that you want to own assets, whether it's land, real estate, gold, silver, you know, certain stocks, um, maybe not all stocks, but you know, you want to own assets instead of currencies. It's always telling to me the number of very wealthy Chinese business people and families who want to move to America, want to send their kids to college in America, want to get special visas to open a McDonald's or a hotel or some business. This is the land of opportunity for Chinese. It doesn't go the other way around. I don't see anybody here in America want to move over to China, unless maybe on a short-term contract, open a factory or something. So I think I think at least short-term, uh, the dollar is the winner, but maybe long-term, yeah, we, we should have reason to fear things. John, I think, you got to think, think about something. You know, how many companies in the United States have built factories in China? Mm. I mean, how many? How much of the manufacturing of goods that we buy in the United States are in China because American companies put them there? So yeah, you do see an awful lot of people going to China. I mean, the, but I mean, yeah, yeah. Let me qualify that. I agree with you on that. You do. You see a lot of Americans going over to on business contracts. They're not going over in the sense of to become soak up the, the the lifestyle and the culture. And they're not, you know, not they're going to raise their families there for generations. I, I meant it in that sense, that kind of a outward flow, if you will. I, I think there is that, that that's kind of a recent, more recent transition. You know, when they joined the WTO, the argument, and it was kind of accepted, I think, by both parties. I mean, Bill Clinton shepherded it. It was done under Republican Congress. George W. Bush completed it. You know, back then, I, I remember, I think it was Jim Rogers of, uh, of Soros fame that moved his family there and was trying to teach his kids Chinese because it seemed and it felt and people believed that they were going to join the international community and become a more open society. And clearly, they had a lot of advantages over the rest of the, of the world. I think that sentiment is gone. Completely, yeah. And it's not going to be coming back. Um, but but there it was there then, Matt. It was. There was initial... Yeah, there are some enthusiasm that this is the future and China has it. And I I feel like whether whether it was real or not, it's not there anymore. I see China as our biggest enemy. I see China as our biggest threat. I am not a China fan. (laughs) 
an America fan, but I really worry. I really worry about the United States profligacy, uh, the United States unwillingness to come to grips with its debt, with uh, the weaknesses in its Federal Reserve, with the problems in uh, coming to co you know consensus uh, judgments in its government. And I think that uh, other nations are going to take advantage of it if we don't put it together. And as we near in our conclusion here, the next few months are going to be very telling for the entire globe and for the US as we face the prospects of higher interest rates. And that's going to put a new wrinkle in all of this, correct? Yes, absolutely. May we push you on that with all the latest data, our number of interest rate rises? Well, again, I'm, I'm focused not on the interest rate rises. I'm focused on the Federal Reserve balance sheet because, you know, we created, and I'm repeating, we created $6 trillion in two years. If we go down to creating zero because we've decided to shrink the Federal Reserve balance sheet, the impact on the U.S. economy is going to be staggering. Uh, what Matt said earlier, you cannot kill an inflation unless you run a recession, and that's the way you're going to hit the recession. If you take interest rates up to 3%, uh, I, who cares? I don't care. Uh, if, you, if you shrink the balance sheet of the Fed, I do care, and I think we are going to do that. Well, we've a lot to watch out for. It's been a great show. We've looked at China, we've looked at the Federal Reserve, and we've looked at the big global macro picture and we'd be back next week with another great topic matt and dick thank you for giving us your insights thank you thanks you were just listening to odeon capital conversations on all things money and markets with dick bovey and matt van alstein your host was john aden Byrne. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.